Um, up here with me is Hallie Palsgrove, uh, and she's going to lead us in prayer right now. And the reason for that is because there's so many things going on in the world. The two most pronounced in my mind, of course, are the events in Afghanistan and also in Haiti with the earthquake. Lots of reasons to be asking that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Hallie, would you please lead us in praying? Please pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning with heavy hearts for our world. We are at a loss to, for how to pray. The pain is of such magnitude. So Spirit, take these feeble words to the Father and translate our hearts groanings for his holy ears. For our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, we pray for your protection peace and courage. They are understandably terrified. May they experience you walking with them and among them saying, do not be afraid for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. We ask for political and humanitarian solutions for the vast number of Afghan refugees, ordinary people suddenly displaced from their homes by the terror of the Taliban. May they discover that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. We also pray this for the nation of Myanmar, for the people there who continue to suffer under an unjust, repressive regime. Lord, free them from this oppression. Bring them justice. Burkina Faso also, Lord, you know about what just happened a couple of days ago where jihadists attacked and killed over 80 civilians, men, women, and children. They were just trying to get home. Finally, Father, bring relief for the nation of Haiti, racked by yet another devastating earthquake, killing at least 2,000 of your image bearers. In all these situations, give wisdom to world leaders as they seek to respond diplomatically, building an essential international consensus for peace and relief. You have said, counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. It's all too much for us, Lord. Our thoughts and prayers seem so feeble. Have mercy on us and hear our prayer. We call on you to fulfill your promise that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Do it, Lord. We ask this in the precious blood of our Lord Jesus and in his name. Amen. There's just so much, so much to be asking that God for, that he would make things new, that he would make things right. And moments like these when we worship, I think, are reminders of, of the God that we pray to, of the God who is near, of the God who is with us, of the God who is willing and able to act. And think of Exodus, uh, when the groans of the people of Israel reach the ears of God, even as Hallie was praying. 
He can't help but move, can't help but act. So may we be people who continue to pray. We're going to continue this morning in our series in the book of Acts. If you want, you can find a Bible, um, Acts chapter 9. We're going to work through this text. Uh, It is Paul's conversion. And before we get there, just a reminder of why we're in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts tells the story of the church, of how this thing that happened with Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection was not just a small thing, but was a world-changing thing, and how it then galvanized the people because of the empowerment of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel that would then make its way through areas like Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth, all the way up to this point where we find ourselves now. So we're looking at that story, at the beginning of that story and how it involves us. So this text, Acts chapter 9, is Paul's conversion. Now, if you were to pick perhaps one story that most people know of when they think of the book of Acts, this would be the story, which is, I think, a problem. Because it means that it's often the case that we think we know what is going to happen. We think we've read it enough, heard it enough, seen enough images that we kind of have a sense of this text. Well, I guess my prayer is, is that we would be willing to be surprised. Case in point, in terms of its familiarity, I bet you as you think and imagine what happens, right, when Paul is blinded by this light and then the voice of Jesus comes to Paul, that he is then knocked to the ground and he falls off his horse. I bet you these are the images we've seen. There is no horse in the story. He falls to the ground, but he is not knocked off of anything. So that's just a reminder that perhaps we don't know the story as well as we think. And it's kind of often the case that it gets wrapped up in all of these things we've told ourselves or we've heard. So let's look at the story with fresh eyes and see what God might have for us. So here's what we know about Saul. And I'm just going to say Paul just so that we're not confused with who we're talking about. His name later changes. But this is the Apostle Paul who is in fact the author of much of the New Testament. We know him up to this point as Saul, and he is the villain of the story. He is the antagonist of the story. We see here in verses 1 through 2 that he is ravaging the church. Meanwhile, Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We need to stop there because there is no other way for this story to go at this point. And Luke wants us to think this other than more death and more imprisonment for Christians. We know Saul. We know who Paul is right now. And he is the one who is ravaging the church. He was there at Stephen's death when Stephen was martyred. And he continues to do this work over and over and over again. There is nothing we're to think about Paul at this point other than somebody to be feared. And of course, we know that the story goes elsewhere, but we cannot underestimate what Luke is doing, is wanting us to know, oh no, what is going to happen next? Who else is going to be killed? But let's stop and ask the question, who was Paul? Who was this person? ravaging the church. 
So what we know is that he was a Jew, actually descended from the tribe of Benjamin. That's why his name is in fact Saul, because Saul, the King Saul, as we read about in the Old Testament, was was somebody who was prominent, somebody we know the story. It's kind of a bummer he was named after Saul, but still royal, royal blood. Now this is something that to be proud of, and so his name was Saul. He belonged also to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees was this Jewish sect who was concerned with the integrity of the scriptures. If you wanted to know what the scriptures were saying and how they were to be followed, you ask a Pharisee. Pharisees not only had that knowledge, but they wanted to keep others in check to be sure that they were living in light of the revealed word of God, the Torah. Paul also grew up in the city of Tarsus, which is at the southern, southern end of what we know today uh, as Turkey. And he would have received education in the Jewish system, in this small Jewish community, but also in the Greek system. So, so Paul was actually, in fact, in, in sort of two worlds, both a Jew, but also Greek-educated, a Jew, and also a Roman citizen. Now, to be a Roman citizen was actually something of, of value, an important thing to have. People paid a lot of money to be a Roman citizen because of the political power that it would give you. The reason why Paul was, was a Roman citizen is probably because his family descended from people who were deported to Rome, taken as slaves, and then brought to Rome. And so therefore they were given Roman citizenship when they were released, and Paul, that was passed down to him. So he was also a Roman citizen. What we also know is that he was somebody who worked with his hands. Often we think of a tent maker. He was actually more something like, a, like an artisan, something like the, who created uh, fabric, a canvas worker who created these awnings. If you, if you remember the movie Gladiator, right? When, when Maximus comes into the Colosseum and there are these things that are sort of shading the place and shading the areas in Rome, those are the things that he would build. It was actually how he made some money. That means he was of lower class. So those in Rome of higher class looked down upon people who were working with their hands. But Paul needed to work with his hands. So here he is, he's a Pharisee, a Roman citizen, Greek educated, which is why he writes in Greek. Also somebody who's of lower class. But also a person we know of as a zealot. Now not all Pharisees were zealots, but Paul was a zealot. And that's significant to the story because it meant that he was willing to kill in order to get faithfulness. If there were people who were not following the scriptures in the way that they were to be following them, he would go so far as to imprison or to kill them to make sure that there was integrity and faithfulness. So in these first two verses, it is clear what we're supposed to think. We are supposed to think that Paul is going to continue what he's been doing to the church. Kill and murder, and nothing can prepare us for what's going to come next. Verse 3. Now as he, Paul, was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now remember, this double sort of um, saying of a name is something that, that should call back those moments when God is calling a prophet or God is calling somebody for his purposes. Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He, being Saul, asked, who are you, Lord? 
This is to be ironic. So he hears this voice. He's knocked to the ground because of this light, and he says, who are you, Lord? Almost as if to suggest that he sort of knows who he's talking to, but not quite. I mean, this could be a word that is used for for royal standing, but Luke is employing this so that we can see the irony. Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. So a few things to see here. The word coming from heaven, why do you persecute me, is significant. Jesus is identifying himself so closely with the church that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. And then when Saul says, well, who am I persecuting? He says, I am Jesus. So here Saul says to this voice, who are you, Lord? Right, the word referring to God, to Yahweh. I am Jesus, the voice says. And we cannot underestimate the significance of this connection of Jesus being the one who reveals God. This will be forever what Paul will work out in his theology in the New Testament. is this connection between God and Jesus, Jesus as the one that reveals God. And we can see how significant this is. Because Paul will now have to re-narrate, re-understand, reformulate his entire life in reference to this revelation of Jesus before him on the road to Damascus. Nothing can stay the same. Everything that has come before is disrupted. It's completely and utterly different now. We can see this. If we look at Galatians 1.11, when Paul is telling this, later on in a letter he writes to the, church, to the church in Galatia, for I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel was proclaimed by me, that the gospel proclaimed by me is not of human or origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You've heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Paul's saying here, this is a completely different thing now, because Jesus Christ has revealed himself to me. Everything before needs to find its understanding, its definition, its completion in this moment of revelation, and everything after can only refer back to that moment. Philippians 3, he says this, Therefore, it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church." 
as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, we read these words in other parts of the New Testament, and we need to understand that this moment in Damascus fundamentally changes Paul's understanding of the world, of himself, of everything he knew. And his whole life is going to be working out what exactly happened, that Jesus revealed God to him. And that is what happens at conversion. When people experience a revelation of Jesus, and I'm not just talking simply about a Damascus moment, but moments in our lives when we come face to face of realizing that Jesus is in fact who he said he is, and all of my life needs to be given over to him. Our entire life and how we know it and understand it needs to be re-understood in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. See, it's clear before this revelation where Paul's life was headed. Absolutely clear. More death, more murder, more ravaging. On the road to Damascus, something happens Jesus Christ himself disrupts the order of things. And my friends, that is the good news of this morning. That Jesus disrupts the order of your life, of my life, and of our lives. There is only one trajectory without knowing who Jesus is. And that trajectory leads to death. But Jesus Christ reveals himself to us and things are disrupted. Can I get an amen? Now, perhaps some of you need that disruption. And so to you, I say, have you experienced the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is it something that you can actually imagine having happened to you, and yet you've tried to push it away? Well, I tell you that reorder your life in light of that revelation, in light of Jesus coming to you, God making himself known to you in Jesus. Be converted and have your life changed and everything you thought you knew realize that it's God's work in your life leading you to a moment of saying, okay. So let's continue. Verse 10. Now, I was thinking about this, actually, just a little aside. This is where I often stop in the story. I mean, this is the, this is the, this is the moment, right? This, this is the trailer of the movie, which is often, sadly, the best part of the movie. And so you don't go further, but there's so much incredible things moving us through the story that we need to pay attention to. So we know that Saul is blind. He gets up from the ground. He needs to be led by hand into Damascus. But then it's the story jumps to this moment in Damascus before Paul gets there. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. This is verse 10. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. 
And he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. So here it sort of flashes over to this moment in Damascus where Ananias, he's called a disciple, sees this vision from the Lord. Ananias, you are going to go and you're going to meet this man named Saul of Tarsus. That's kind of funny because of course Ananias would know. Ananias says that, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. I'm not going to do that. I don't know if you heard this guy Saul, kind of crazy. He's killing everybody. He takes people to prison. I ain't going to do that. And we need to understand, of course, Ananias would never do that. Why would he do that? He knows the stories of who Saul is. But God is preparing Saul's moment by going to Ananias so that Ananias is ready to meet him. I mean, again, God's work in this story. So wonderful. He says, no. Go, this person is going to be an instrument. He is going to speak and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to priests. Verse 17, so Ananias went and entered the house and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is moving to me. Ananias, this disciple, who knows only one thing about Saul, because of this vision of God, goes to Saul, lays his hands on him, a murderer of his own people, and then says, Brother Saul. He says, Brother Saul. And it's at this moment that Paul turns from an enemy to a brother, and then later a witness. Notice the reversal in Acts 9, 1 through 2, and even before this, Paul is a man who is ravaging the church and binding them and taking them to prison. And here we have this reversal of Ananias, this disciple, using his hands to place them on Paul and to call him brother. Do we trust the Spirit? Do we trust the Spirit enough to believe that God can create family and friendship with those we only knew of as enemy or other? Do you and I believe that that can actually happen? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. 
Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So here we are, Paul, the one who at one time murdered those who were Christians. The first thing he sees when the scales fall from his eyes is an, an enemy who is now laying his hands on him, praying on his behalf that he might be, fell, be filled with the Spirit. We cannot underestimate what is going on here. That the Spirit is continuing to do what we've always seen the Spirit do. Create family and friendship and community between people who could only otherwise be enemies. Willie Jennings says this, a wonderful commentator on Acts. Can we see with God? Can we see with God? Can we see those who are in rumor or truth dangerous as God sees them? with a future drenched in divine desire? This is where discipleship, truly being a follower of Jesus, presses us to reorder our knowledge. The truth we know of a person or people must move to the background, and what we know of God's desire for them must move to the foreground. The danger we imagine inscribed on their bodies must be read against the delight we know God takes in their life that same delight covers us. Can we see with God? Can we see others as God sees them in the same type of divine delight that creates new stories and new futures? Let's continue. The end of 19. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the the Messiah. So we're moving into this part in the, t- in the text where I think we see that a converted life sort of begs two questions. Two questions of a converted life, and here's the first one. What happened? Right? Something significant happened to Paul. All of a sudden, this person who is, who is ravaging the church is now saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Wait a second. What happened? I thought he got orders from the chief priests to bind up the Christians and to take them off to prison, but now he is preaching in this way? And those of us who have been converted, those of us who are disciples, this question is to be asked of us in the way that we live our lives. What happened? Do our lives beg this question? Do we live in such a way that people want to know what happened to you? What happened to the person I thought I knew? Wait, what happened that that you could actually live that way, spend your time that way, hang out with those people, be generous in that way, be hospitable and compassionate and kind? What happened? It's the first question that a converted life begs. And the second one is this, do you need others? Let's continue, verse 23. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, 
brought him to the apostles and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who'd spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went out in and among them in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Again, notice the role reversal here with Paul. He is the man who so ominously stands there and has the people's cloaks like laid at his feet when Stephen is being murdered for the sake of the gospel. Power. Here is a person who at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 gets what he wants, getting the legal documents necessary in order to take the Christians back to Jerusalem to imprison them. He is leading a death squad against the church. Power. Paul is converted on the road to Damascus and is blind. And the text is very clear that says he needs to be led by the people who were with him into Damascus. Need. Paul does not eat. He does not drink. He cannot see until Ananias comes and lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Need. Paul is preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and there are death threats. And he needs to be rescued outside of, the, of a wall, lowered in a basket by his disciples. Need. Paul goes to Jerusalem and people are afraid of him because they know what he is like. But Barnabas is there to vet him and to give his testimony on his behalf. Need. That to me is pretty remarkable. That to be converted is not to just live a life where people say what happened, but to be converted and to have a revelation of God through Jesus in your life is to be somebody who immediately finds himself in a complete place of need. Again, Willie Jennings. He, Paul, is moving toward a liminal space where he will always need help, always need friends, and always look for community. He is moving toward church. How much do you recognize your need for others? Depending on how you answer, that might actually be indicative of what conversion has meant to you. What conversion has meant to me. It reminds me of this wonderful episode in The Crown Season three, episode seven, it's called Moon Dust. I give you all of that information so you will go watch it. But here's what happens. Philip, you know, the queen's husband, begins, this episode begins with Philip sitting in church. And he's listening to this old dean uh, give this sermon and Philip is totally bored. The church absolutely has no relevance in his life. He does not need it. All along, sort of this disdain for the church is when the Americans are going to the moon, Armstrong, Collins, and Aldrin. 
And Philip is so transfixed by this story. This is, this is the pinnacle of human genius, human ingenuity. We don't need the church. What we need is courage. What we need is science. What we need is to go to the moon. And so he's amazed by the story. All the while, his faith is in crisis. If he, in fact, had faith. He gets this opportunity to meet these three astronauts. He begs that, that they could have a meeting with him. Just 15 minutes, that's all he wants. So he gets these three young astronauts in a room with him, and he's so excited. He writes down these questions. He actually takes so much time wanting to ask these questions. He sits down in front of these three astronauts, and he's annoyed because they have colds. They sneeze. Not only do they have colds, they're young. Not only are they young, they're just totally preoccupied with, with like the awe and grandeur of, of Buckingham Palace. What he wants to talk about is what it took to get to the moon. And they can't stop sneezing. Now all along this, there's this other new dean that comes because the queen, you know, she can, she can do whatever she wants and she's like, oh no, my husband's faith is in crisis. We need to get a younger person here. So she gets this dean to come to England and the one thing that this dean wants to do is he wants to create in this, this empty room a place where other priests can come and simply discuss the difficulties of their faith, of their ministry, of their doubt of their failings. Philip thinks this is absolutely atrocious. He actually comes, he's invited to come and see, and he just tears him down. He tells him, why would you spend your time doing this? Why would you spend your time groveling? Why would you spend your time just talking about your problems? What you guys need is, is bravery. What you need is to look at the astronauts, look what they're capable of. So of course, he, he, he meets these astronauts, then he comes back to Dean Woods because he realizes they're just human too, these astronauts. And he's in this place of crisis in his own life, and he sits down before the Dean again with all these priests around him. But his posture is totally changed. And he begins to say how he looked down on this group how could they just spend their time sharing their lives and their hurts and their difficulties and their failures? And he says, I get it. He says, what we need isn't, isn't in the moon. What we need isn't courage. What we need is faith, wherever it's located. And so what I'm here to tell you, this is what he's saying to the dean, is help. Help me. And I find that so striking of a conversion for Philip. And I see that so much so in this conversion of Paul, where Paul comes from this place of complete and utter certainty and power to this place of meeting Jesus and what he can't get out of is needing others. What he can't get out of is needing this new story that somehow makes sense of his life and completely disrupts what he thought he knew. And so as we think about conversion, as we think about the revelation of Jesus that changes everything, 
I mean, those two questions are for our consideration. Are we living a life that begs the question, what happened? And then are we living a life that needs others? See, we think of the Apostle Paul as somebody wonderful, and he did, he had a brilliant mind. Somebody able to, to convince people with arguments of, of the truths of the gospel, and that's true. But where he began was this complete and utter place of needing the community, needing Jesus Christ to make sense of himself. And that's where we find ourselves constantly. To be converted is to be over and over and over again, recognizing that it is the story of Jesus that makes sense of our lives and that it is him and others that I need. Thanks be to God. We have an opportunity to pray with others this morning, which again, I think is an act of, of dependence, of need to say help. Help me. And if that's where you find yourselves, if you are somebody who is needing to be prayed with, do not hesitate. Again, there will be people to my right, left, your right, your left, who want to pray with you. Perhaps you're somebody actually who isn't quite sure if you've been met by Jesus. Maybe you're struggling with the moment that you've had of, oh, was that a moment where God was revealing himself to me through Jesus? Well, this is an opportunity to talk with somebody about that, to pray through that. Because God is bent on being known and wants us to know him so much so that he comes to us and sometimes he blinds us. So with that, would you please stand? We'll continue in our worship. And again, as you feel led, please move to pray. Thank you.